It's the Generation Zen Podcast with another very exciting special interview. We have Dreamcast Guy, and for this episode, Jeremy was back. Jeremy, hi. Hey, how's it going? But it was we, a really exciting interview, like Justin said. But we also brought two behind-the-scenes contributors who are also really good friends of mine, Sean and Tom. What's going on, guys? Hey, it's hey. good. So we interviewed Dreamcast Guy for you know a little over an hour and we had some really interesting conversations about next gen consoles what it was like uh growing up in the age of the dreamcast and we had a lot of fun right guys yeah this was such a good one i I, i'm so happy i got to be here for this because this was just so awesome it was nice learning about this guy he's got a lot of interesting things to say and uh, he's got a cool story yeah, this was a really fun interview, and we had an absolute blast. And Tom and Sean will be on the podcast more often now. They, like I said earlier, contribute a lot behind the scenes. But now we have a lot of plans to expand the show, and I'm really looking forward to it. So thank you guys so much for tuning into this interview with Dreamcast Guy. You're going to love it, and I hope to see you guys soon. Later, folks. And thank you so much to Dreamcast Guy for coming on this episode of the Generation Zen podcast. How you doing, man? Uh, super good and honestly really happy to be here. I, I feel like we've been kind of going back and forth on Twitter for a year and a half, two years. Yeah, for, for quite a while. I mean, I've been a fan of your channel for, what is it now? I think two years, two and a half years now. And yeah, yeah. Because I, I started following you because I started watching... The Spawn cast with Spawn Wave and RGT85. And then, you know, I started following everyone there. And then I loved the videos that you were creating. And, um, yeah, and here we are now. And you're on my show. And I really appreciate it. So thank you so much. Yeah, happy to be here. Happy to meet all your buddies. Uh, how's it going, everybody? We all doing good? Let's let's rock. Yeah, we're all. I'm doing good personally. Uh, I'm glad that uh, Justin here introduced us to your channel. You know, I've been enjoying all your videos. It's been nice to keep me uh, occupied during this this time that we're in right now, you know. Everything's been going good. I actually recently, or a few minutes ago, we just watched your one of your first videos, I think, from 11 years ago, just to kind of see how uh, how you've grown and uh, what what a, what a striking difference. Oh, I know. <laughs> Sonic Adventure review. Do, <laughs> do, do you all notice that when I talk in those old videos, I didn't have front teeth? My front teeth all got broken out way oh, when I was on yeah. the street. I, I lost a lot of my front teeth during the, the homeless phase of my life. So if you watch my super old videos, I have to talk funny because I couldn't I couldn't do certain consonants and stuff. I had a little bit of a windy lisp a little bit. Whoa, that's crazy. Like, oh, I guess man. keep like your, uh, your forward lip down most of the time. Yeah. Yeah, again, I would I would purposely I train myself over the years to uh, keep my my upper lip down when I would talk. So I, that's part of the reason I think I over enunciate now is because I can fully open my mouth. Yeah, I guess like you had so many years training yourself to like underemphasize using that part of your mouth, and now you're just like kind of just happy to use it. Yeah, like yeah. hello, how's it going? All of a sudden, I can use this. <laughs> Why don't we just jump right into this, guys? So. Dreamcast guy, if you don't mind, can you give us a brief background on kind of who you are, how you got into gaming, and how you became such a big YouTube channel now with over 175,000 subscribers? Uh, I guess there's no real magic to it. Uh, 
I think just in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, because of like the Nintendo revolution, uh, video games were kind of considered as toys. So a lot of parents just bought them for kids, not even really knowing what they were. Uh, and I was one of those households where mom and dad bought me an Atari 2600 with like some early educational games that kind of taught you like math and like pattern recognition and stuff. And then uh, over time, we got tired of the Atari, so we got an NES and got introduced to Mario. And they would always just buy like one game for these consoles a lot of times because they didn't really understand the concept of treating it like a VCR and you need to buy new tapes, so to speak. Mm. Uh, but over time, I got introduced to more games and the, the horizons broadened and uh, I got to see the wide breadth of gaming. Uh, got introduced to RPGs in the, the mid-90s once I started seeing Final Fantasies. Uh, I was very poor, so I didn't have a lot of games, but some kids in the neighborhood would find like these RPGs or uh, buy them with like allowance or newspaper money or whatever. So uh, I got introduced to the Final Fantasy series and it really kind of made me start to consider it more of an art form, uh, which people are more used to now. But in the 90s, if you tried to explain like gaming as an art form, it was very shunned. But uh, even from the start, I like to study video games. I like to try and see how they were made and look up uh, all sorts of articles about the developers. I was always curious about the writing of video games. And as it went on, I tried to just get more familiar with it. And then as an adult in my like late 20s, I was in the book business and nobody, I, I knew zero gamers. So I just decided to start making some YouTube videos to to talk about games again. Because since I didn't have any gamer buddies, I wanted to like have that creative outlet. And it somehow took off. Pretty much growing up and in your 20s, you knew nobody that played video games and you were kind of just no. by yourself. Wow. Yeah, like in these little, little tiny pockets. In high school, I had a big gamer group uh, that was really into Halo. We did a lot of like Halo tournaments and stuff. And uh, honestly, we had modded Xboxes. So we were just able to install bootleg games. So we would play every single xbox game possible that's <laughs> when i kind of discovered emulators and stuff because since we were still just in such a poor area it wasn't financially feasible to just to get games so unfortunately a lot of these people kind of turned to bootlegging so we would just download and find these games and that's when i really started to see like this this undiscovered history of even though i grew up with the nes and super nintendo and nintendo, nintendo 64 i didn't really see a big chunk of their library until high school because of emulators. And then I started seeing like, oh, there are these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of amazing RPG masterpieces that I had never even heard of sometimes. So I started discovering like, you know, Breath of the Wild and Dragon Quest and stuff. And it really just stoked such a fire of like, I need to beat these. It's not just about observing them. I was like, I want to beat all these games because I feel like that's a way to show respect is to, to see them all. That's true. You're not just, uh, not just looking at them. You're actually experiencing them getting a better view on them and really able to appreciate that yeah yeah that's why i, I never there are those people that are like oh I, I enjoy watching zelda let's plays it's like that's one thing but i feel like if you want to really understand zelda you need to play it you need to get your ass kicked by ganondorf sometime mm -hmm. you need to solve the puzzles on your own find your own like solution to the puzzles and the dungeons and stuff it's a it's a whole different experience if you do it yourself for sure yeah yeah and that's that's really kind of what I feel like the biggest thing of growing up that that I think ended up laying the groundwork of getting into YouTube was that uh, video games to me were so much of a lifestyle, even from the start. Like me and my friends just loved uh, 
trying to beat the games again and again and trying to we would act them out on the playground and stuff which i'm sure everybody did we would always we were into resident evil we would act out resident evil on the playground i don't know it really kind of got me into the idea of like gaming as a as a social construct yeah i remember we used to do that kind of stuff when we were in elementary school too i think about it and yeah it was just gaming kind of transferred into our personal lives too and it, it, our imaginations were kind of expanded because of gaming and i think that's one thing a lot of people don't like don't really think about well they back in the day they didn't really think about that people think about it now i think but mm, yeah, yeah think absolutely yeah people uh sometimes think of of gaming in, in a poor light but really i mean it's it's such a creative outlet in a way like there's so many different games out there and some let you do so many different things in other games like rpgs and puzzle games are so much different and people don't really see that sometimes and they really can ex um they can work out your brain a lot a lot of video games are very good for not only reflexes but just mental development but i think there's a very dangerous road when a when a kid just gets too into video games and that's the only thing they do and i think that's oh, where yeah, for sure. stigma comes from is a I've experienced that I've seen kids who only want to play video games and a part of me is like, Oh yeah, they're having so much fun. And I, I, I don't want to take that away from, them, but like it can be too much. I think that was me. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I had an addiction to world of Warcraft for a couple of years that I'm not, oh. uh, not proud of just super bad down the rabbit oh. hole, like ne neglected, neglected work relationships neglected uh definitely avoided uh, lost some girlfriends because of that freaking elf simulator <laughs> oh it all came came flooding back to me you said that yep I, I, yep. I went on and played guild wars 2 for a while after that too so i was really down in the mmo hole for a oh, while yeah. the rabbit hole for sure yeah, yeah mmo is scary they're too fun and they're random. That's the hardest part about it is that you're like, I have to log in. I have to play. Like, who? I may get the best item in the entire universe tomorrow. Who knows? <laughs> it's like, oh, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It goes from like a game to like a daily obligation. You kind of have to do it because you're like, oh, what if today something big happens and I, yeah. I don't play? I miss out. We'll fall behind like we get the, the we get stuck in the fake uh, structure of the digital society of like, oh, I don't want to be the weak player on my server. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to get power creep by other players because you didn't log in for a week. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's just so, so damn rewarding, right? Like you get that get that one item, and it's like you have to keep playing, or you finally complete this task, or you get a high enough level to start doing these quests, and then it just keeps feeding you and feeding you. I've always loved that the South Park episode so much of they play it for hundreds of hours and they get max level and they kill the bad player and it's like, what do we do now? Like, oh no, we have fun. And we go right back to play. Like, That's really how yeah. You do this awful grind you despise and you get to this point where you're like, oh, now I can smile, but I'm still going to do the same grind. I've, I've met some really good friends though playing some MMOs and that's the crazy part is like the community can be so good sometimes but also just so bad it's it's such a weird mix of people playing these games sure I'm, I'm into Final Fantasy 14 right now because I feel like I'm not hardcore on it I, I kind of suck at it but I like Final Fantasy 14 because 
the community is so positive. It's all one big faction. There's not really like a war at the center of the story, which strangely has attracted this very like cohesive fan base that hmm. doesn't care if you're bad at like everybody I've ever met is super nice. People build all these giant digital mansions and people have actually started to like invite me to their digital mansions. And I can just sit in these big digital jacuzzis and stuff. And it's like, this is so cool. Like who cares if I can't beat the boss because I'm bad at the game. This is a blast. <laughs> So you're just enjoying game. the experience of playing the game, whether you win or not. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it's not about being the best. Sometimes it's about just experiencing the world with other players. I do kind of want to get into this, though, because we're talking about how games are fun, and then you meet all kinds of different people when we're playing in these worlds. What is it like when you do these reviews, Dreamcast Guy, separating between fun and work because obviously when you're reviewing a game you have to take notes you have to capture the footage you have to remember where that footage was so when you write your script you could talk about it what is the process like on having fun with a game but also reviewing it uh, strangely I, I and people sometimes get taken aback by this i think it's it's more fun to review a game than just play it. There, there's something so fascinating about having to be analytical, to having to beat the boss, having to do the side quests, needing to test out the different uh, difficulty modes and stuff. I feel like when I'm reviewing a game, I get so much more out of it. I, I am forced to see like every horizon and every zone, and I'm forced to do co-op, even if I only wanted to see the single player. I don't know, the 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 fact that I am required to see so much of it makes me a lot of times enjoy these games so much more uh and i do have the advantage of i think the the one like skill i have if, if you want to consider it a skill is that i definitely have a a very very good memory uh i'm not sure i'd call it photographic but a lot of times in this memory i can usually just write some pretty detailed notes and memorize a big chunk of the game a lot of times i memorize all my footage so i'm able to just on the fly reference particular battles or moments or level up systems so uh, maybe it's just the practice, but after doing it for so many years, I, I definitely love the the thrill of reviewing a lot. You kind of get like a more holistic experience out of the game from just because you have to to review it well. You have to see everything, so it kind of makes you appreciate it more. I, I guess that kind of does make sense to me. Like like if somebody told like imagine if your job was stopping and smelling the flowers, like you had to every day <laughs> go up and smell flowers. After a while, you'd really appreciate like wow, this is. This is an interesting thing. This is my job, but also I'm glad that I'm forced to do such a pleasurable thing. Because, you know, you might skip over something because I normally wouldn't go smell the flowers, but if I had to, I could find something I might appreciate. Yeah, I like it a lot. And it's opened my my eyes a lot to genres I may have missed. Uh, a lot of times when I'm trying to review stuff, I, I want to hit all the big topics. I want to hit all the big stuff because obviously I want to grow as a channel. Every YouTuber wants to grow. So I've had to force myself at times to review maybe a racing game that I wouldn't have taken seriously, like The Crew or um, just, oh, I want to explore this like super meta first person shooter like Valorant. And, and so because of it, it ends up making it where I ended up learning about all these extra genres that I never took seriously. Like, I don't think I ever would have played Fortnite before when Fortnite was first blowing up. Like, obviously now it's a meme, but I was like at the beginning of the Fortnite wave. And it was so fascinating to be at the ground floor of a game that's becoming a multi-billion dollar money machine and seeing the metaform and seeing the esports people grow. It was so interesting to be at the very center of that as it was happening. And I definitely would not have been there if it wasn't for YouTube and, and for having to try and make content on it. It's, it's so fun. It's such a different way. 
it really it's such an interesting point of view i never really thought about it like that but yeah because you have to you know make a review for the game you have to try out everything the game has to offer whereas if you were just playing it you know as like a recreation thing you might miss some things you may have liked otherwise yeah or be too casual that's that's something else is that you know sometimes you have those games where it's like i don't even care about finishing grant that's out of five i just want to mess around in the online mode and maybe i'll just drive i just like drift in the cars but since i'm forced to finish the main story and see all the different alternate endings a lot of times i end up just getting that that extra layer of respect for the design itself of like, wow, this is a really, really well-paced adventure because I, I have to run to the end sometimes. So yeah, I definitely, if anybody's ever like, oh, I want to get into reviewing, but it seems hard, just do it, start it. I guarantee you it is a very, very addictive thing to do. I love it. Now, what about when you have to review a bad game, like that Amazon game? Oh yeah, <laughs> just it. Oh, so How do you get through that? <laughs> it, it's awful. Uh, but it's also sort of fascinating at times. I enjoy kind of studying games that feel incomplete. Now, like now that I've beaten so many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of games and written, I mean, it sounds mind blowing, but I've written like a thousand scripts now, literally a thousand scripts. I'm at that point where I kind of am able to step outside myself. And even if the moment to moment is annoying, even if it's just super aggravating, getting my face ground into the pavement again and again in a broken multiplayer game, I can also kind of just see all the interesting pieces of it. I, I kind of like reviewing bad games, not because I get to rip them apart in a script, but instead because I get to see what does work down the road. I, I feel like if every, this is something somebody said is, uh, sometimes people ask, do I think games are getting better? Yes, games are definitely getting better. But it's also interesting because now that every game is 8 out of 10 or above, so many games manage to be way the, the overall quality of gaming keeps skyrocketing. Whenever we get those bad games, it's kind of interesting to think, how did they mess up so bad? Like, how is yeah. it even possible to have a committee of talented people come together in a room and poop this out? <laughs> I wonder Especially how those games uh, would have been oh, seen. Sorry. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, but I wonder how those games would have been seen like 10 years ago if they came out. Would they have been just been revolutionary for the time? Or do you think games are so good now that mediocre games seem worse? Partially. I, I do think that part of it's just that uh, I, my, my main theory is that patch culture is actually kind of having a feedback loop. The fact that so many games are just put out broken and then they fix it and it blows up later, people aren't as afraid of releasing a polished product. Like, look at No Man's Sky. Everybody celebrates No Man's Sky. It has won multiple awards as the most overhauled game of all time, most improved online project, biggest online project. It has all these awards for it. And these accolades are after it came out and was labeled as one of the biggest scams of all time. Right. So I think... Yeah. The fact that they're able to take that money and just patch it and patch it and patch it and be totally fine and still build up a giant fan base. And I'm not even blasting No Man's Sky. I think it's just that more companies realize you don't need to release a complete game. You just need to keep people hovering around it long enough for you to finish it. You know, And, and I think that's the downside is that maybe these games would have failed in the past. Maybe these games would have succeeded in the past. But I definitely think we can all agree that if these were released 10 years ago, they would have been more finalized before they hit store shelves yeah especially because there's like like you said there's awards for most improved game and you and the, there could be hype surrounding a game and they could get the initial revenue and they could use that initial revenue to make their game even better so companies seem like they're a lot, a lot less afraid now to 
release unfinished products, especially because there could be like a redemption arc, if you will, for the game later on. <laughs> yeah, so it's been scientifically proven. You can look up, uh, there's all sorts of things called the underdog study. Uh, human psychology is based around the fact that we want to root for the the project that we think is most deserving of our love. Like they've even done studies that show like if you put two squares next to each other and you say the square on the left is weaker, uh, this is one that most people hate, people will psychologically love it more. So I think that a lot of game developers now realize you can release a pretty bad game and someone out there is going to defend it just because it's a bad game. People are going to defend your game. So I think they're like, as long as we break even, who gives a crap? As long as the investors don't leave, just release it. Yeah, I mean, and like in the side of game comebacks, Rainbow Six Siege probably was like one of the biggest comebacks I've, oh, I've seen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because they, they, that game for like a year or something like that, I didn't even, no one played it. And then all of a sudden it has this huge following and like everyone like for a while was playing it. It's insane to think about how that even happened. Yeah, they, they sent me a copy of that when it first came out. What was that? Oh, God, four years ago? Then it came out. It came out super long ago. They oh, sent geez. it to me when it first came out. And I remember playing it and not even being able to do a review because I thought it, at the start it was such a paper thin experience. I was like, I cannot even write a script about this. There's oh. there's not enough in here to make a seven minute video. So I just passed it up, never even thought it. And then everybody's begging me four years later, like, bro, you gotta check out Rainbow Six Siege. And it's like, oh my God, there's this operator system and everything that's super concrete. It's it's funny, yeah. People want to love something and they, they give it a lot of room as long as the developers stick with it. Yeah, on the flip side though, it's like you look at a game like Anthem and I remember your, your review for Anthem. You're like, this game is fun, you know, on the base level. But once you beat it, there's no other side quest. And there's no other post game to do. And the developers are saying, okay, we're going to fix it. We're going to make people happy. But over a year later, and there's still hardly any content updates for it. Yeah, it's, it's definitely the thing of, I think there's also the interesting nature now of uh, gamers expect uh, how would I even say this? I think gamers expect a certain amount of developer uh, respect and advisement. I think if a game comes out and people bought it, they don't just want to return it anymore. They don't just want to complain. Like, they want it to improve. So, yeah, I definitely think there's also that. If people are more willing to put up with bad games at times. And some developers seem to abuse that right. Yeah, and I think there's an expectation that now that patching culture exists that patches can happen for games even good games where they're like oh maybe we'll get more content or you know there's the expectation that you know a finished product might not actually be finished because there could be additional content and then people who are like really diehard fans might be like i hope we get dlc or something well you you, you nailed it and this is actually something i've been struggling with on the channel because i, I don't know how to approach it but um dlc expectation like everybody now wants dlc like myself included like i'm super obsessed with evil within 2 i did like 11 playthroughs of evil within 2 i'm probably the biggest fan of the world of that freaking game <laughs> super underrated in my opinion didn't sell great but evil within 1 had several very good dlc packs that were standalone and very interesting and evil within 2 never got a single piece of dlc nothing like they patched out some bugs and then just kind of abandoned it and it left people sad and it also it, it kind of showed that interestingness of people are like demanding of DLC or DLC sometimes just totally changes a game. And that's where I, I've been thinking about trying to write videos about how, you know, like the Smash Brothers DLC just changes the game so fundamentally. I don't know. It, it, it makes reviewing difficult at times also because sometimes I review a game. 
that's like a single player packaged experience, 30 hour adventure, super fun. And a year later, they've completely overhauled the aiming system. They've expanded all these extra levels that are free content. It's like now I guess my review is inaccurate now because the game I talked about doesn't exist anymore, you know? Yeah, it, it kind of, but you also have to take into con, like contextualize the review the time it was made because you know games these days can change into like like you just said completely different games after a couple maybe like a year or two of free updates hmm. but speaking of just like reviewing in general what are some things that you wish more people knew about making game reviews uh they're very time consuming extremely so that that's one of the things i think people kind of uh I don't think anybody really says this to me directly, but I kind of get the tone sometimes is that people think that I just, uh, I don't know, make a review. Like they think I just beat a game and then I just turn on the microphone and then I just talk for 10 minutes and then I just drop in some clips. When in actuality, there's just so many hours of stressing over the script and what should I put in here? What should I cut? How much do I think this adds to it? Trying to think of the phrases that I think best helps somebody buy it. Uh, and then obviously it takes a long time to even record the audio. I try and make sure that the audio sounds very off the cuff, but it actually usually takes me two or three hours to record a lot of times those like 11 minute videos, just because there's so many ums and errs and ways I want to try and change the inflection or, oh, I just think that this point is super askew, but cutting it out means I need to re-record this line. Yeah. I don't know. So it, it's super, super, super time consuming, which I enjoy. That's definitely the highlight to me is the, the craft of it and editing it all together takes like a, usually an entire day. But I think a lot of people kind of just assume that every reviewer, especially at IG, and I see a lot of people say this about IG and like, oh man, I bet they crap this out in an afternoon. It's like, no, e even the worst reviewer is spending days, if not weeks, on each video. But do you find it takes less time the more experienced you get, or is it always going to be like the same consistent amount of time? It, it's going to take the same amount of time because, unfortunately, as you get faster at it, you want to do more. Like I'm so dumb about this of like now that I can do so many cool editing tricks and I know how to stack up stuff and I know how all the different ways to record uh, gameplay in the highest possible fidelity. Then I'm like, okay, well maybe I should do some zoom crops here. Maybe I should start doing more side side by side comparisons or oh maybe I should start to try and capture footage from multiple consoles. Oh, but that means I'll have to wait for the PC patch of this game so I can do this thing and show how it looks with this control support so you end up making it where e even if you're faster at it you end up accidentally taking the exact same amount of time to do it the more you know the more you want to do Makes yeah sense. exactly exactly so i'm pretty interested to hear um i know being a, a full-time youtuber is uh definitely a uh an, an overlooked position people kind of under underrate it but uh what's some things that you did to break through in such a crowded market you know, video games is a, it's pretty vast. A lot of people talking about it. A lot of people making content on it. What do you think that you did that made your content shine above other people's? Uh, I I think it's two things. the The biggest thing is not necessarily my skill. I, I definitely don't pat myself on the back and be like I'm the best reviewer. I think it more comes down to scheduling. Uh, I have a theory that uh, people, especially gamers they want to be excited about stuff. People like looking at trailers. People like being hyped for the next big release. So the fact that in my videos from the very start, I would talk about my current project 
and the next project. Like, welcome to Top 10 Thursday. We're checking out this video. And you knew, okay, well, that means I'm six days away from the next Top 10 Thursday. I have to subscribe. It kind of entices uh, mm. them to the system of like the, like, oh, man, that's coming up. That's coming up. That's coming up. Um, and I do think the other thing is that I, I kind of was lucky to start in the era of reviews where nobody had really kind of hammered it out yet. Like, I feel like there were a lot of people that were experimenting with it. But when I really sat down in like 2014 and decided I want to review every game I can, I want to start reviewing DLC. I want to start talking about this stuff. My only real competition were mega channels, people who were doing like a Angry Joe at that point, it was at like 1.5 million. Uh, Angry Centaur Gaming, ACG, Carrick, he had just started, but even he hit like 50,000 pretty fast. My only real competition was IG and a GameSpot. And I think that people kind of appreciated the fact that there's this tiny random idiot who works at a bookstore <laughs> who clearly loves video games is talking about games. So I think I, I kind of just scooped up a fan base because it was something that just wasn't around a lot at the time. The relatability factor. Yeah, yeah. People, I think people realize that I'm not a professional. I mean, I've talked about this. I have no college experience. I never went to a single day of college. I have no professional training. Everything is self-taught. I would check out, uh, you were allowed to check out books when I worked at the bookstore. You could check out any book for two weeks. So I would check out books that taught me how to do green screen. I would check out books uh, like Rebel Without a Crew. It is a book about a guy who made a movie for $5,000. Wow. And I read about how he wrote scripts and I would kind of just try and teach myself these skills. And I think because my videos aren't the highest quality, people kind of admire the fact that I'm not some Hollywood aficionado. I'm just some random guy who likes video games. But that's what makes you authentic, though, is because people like you're just like a regular gamer fan like like the rest of us. But you're looking at it from that perspective as opposed to trying to make it a popular review or, or yeah, yeah. You know, make developers happy. Like you're just like, no, this is my opinion on the on the game. And I'm just going to tell it the way it is. I, I do think it also helps uh, specificity, so like specializing. I think that a big advantage was that when I first started, um, a lot of the reviewers were all uh, PC based. Everybody, even Total Biscuit, Total Biscuit's definitely one of my major heroes. Love that man to, to death. Unfortunately, he passed, obviously. I love Total Biscuit. I know. And, and you remember that he would do these like 12 minute off the cuff almost. You could tell that he had a script in front of him to some degree, but he'd be playing a game and reviewing it to such a high skill level. But I always realized the one part of this that isn't approachable is that he's playing this on a supercomputer. Mm -hmm. And it, the graphics were amazing, and he was able to render this stuff at like 1080p when most people were still having stuff at 480p. But I realized, okay, well, my strange advantage is that I'm a broke bitch. I, I could barely <laughs> afford my PlayStation 4. So when I started reviewing stuff, I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to aim at my own demographic. I'm going to aim at the people who are retail workers and stuff who buy six games a year. You know, it's like, I think that's an approachable market. So I've always figured that it was important to keep myself centered as a console reviewer. I re Even though I have a computer now that edits pretty well and stuff, I still purposely review the console versions of stuff. I know that for one thing. I would definitely listen to someone more like you than I would someone who's writing something for like a gaming blog, like like a GameStop gaming blog or IGN, because to me, you know, I'm looking for someone who's actually, you know, playing the games because they want to, you know, playing these games because they're interested in them, not pay, not playing them so much because, you know, they were told, OK, you have to review this game now. And then they go off and play the game for 10 minutes, maybe, and then write a review on on their, you know, IGN thing and then 
submit it, you know, and that's that, that's all the effort they put into it, you know. Yeah. I don't... Well, so so I get a chance to secretly talk to IGN people sometimes, and a lot of their employees are nice. They're they're very kind, but yeah, the weirdest part to me. Uh, because early on, I, I was so broke when I started YouTube, uh, an early comment people told me a lot is, go get hired by IGN. A lot of people were like, all right, you're getting better on camera. You're learning how to talk better. Like, just go get a job at IGN so you can quit working at the bookstore. And uh, something I'm glad I didn't, the reason I'm glad I didn't is because a lot of those people talk about like how weird it is to talk about video games with a boss because you think about how weird is it that they fill out a review and then hand it into their boss and the boss approves that review it's just that's such a bonkers concept i'm very glad i do not have that because you're your own boss <laughs> yeah if something sucks like that i love that advantage sometimes people get mad about my reviews and, and i actually appreciate that i appreciate when people write me like a long mean comment saying why they disagree because at least they're disagreeing with my opinion you know it's like i deserve that like you disagree in an educated manner you want me to improve as a reviewer because you think you you believe i screwed up and that's totally fine i love the disagreement i love the conversation it's not oh man i wish my boss had cut that part you know it's like it's on me that's great yeah, that's really interesting when you when you put it that way, because whenever you have somebody looking in from the outside in your review, they're also like really critiquing your art style too, like the way you edit and the way you, you want to highlight a certain topic. And your boss, you're right, doing a game review might say, you know what, the developer might get really annoyed if we do this, take that out. And you don't have to deal with that. Or even the, the videos are edited by a separate person. So a guy beats the game. A person, he writes the script and then he records the audio. Sometimes they hire somebody to record the audio, but typically it's the same person who wrote the review, records the audio, but then they hand it off. A separate guy has beaten the game. They use that guy's gameplay in the video and the editing team cuts it together. And it's like, I, I like that if I want to make, I'm sure you'll notice sometimes in my reviews, I'll make a very specific anecdotal joke about like one I made obviously years ago that I really liked was uh, I ran into a character named Blunts for life. I was lost in a volcano in Elder Scrolls Online and I'm just totally screwed. And this guy swooped down who looked like a giant superhero based on marijuana and saved my life. And it was such a funny story. And I was like, bro, this never would ever be on IGN ever. And I like that I can tell that story because it's my gameplay and my script and my audio. I can just throw it in there and be like, yeah, nobody can censor that. Like that's, that's a real great like thing that maybe love this game. I think that's a problem a lot of YouTubers come up with is that they get signed on by these big companies uh, when they're very small. And at the time, it seems like a really good idea but as their content gets better and better and they get more viewers, um, you realize you could have done this on your own, and but now you're locked in and they own your content. And I, I think it's mostly better for to try to stick it out. If you, if, if you have someone like IGN looking at you to hire you, you probably have something good on your hands and you should just try to do it on your own, at least for a little bit. Yeah, do you, that's that's one of my favorite stories that Total Biscuit talked about is that uh, Total Biscuit, when he was first really blowing up, the first Total Biscuit content he was doing was talking about World of Warcraft, and Blizzard approached him and said, we'll pay you uh, $2,000 cash every month to be an announcer for StarCraft tournaments. And he was super hungry, and he was behind on rent, and he almost took the money, but in it was going to be a non-compete contract, which means he could only talk about video games for them. He could never do anything else except for them. So he passed on that and obviously grew to being a multi-millionaire from his solo content. And he's like, I'm really glad that my hunger did not get the best of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jeez. Hard thing to say no to. I think it's really important that, you know, someone like yourself, 
Dreamcast guy keeps their authenticity because that's the reason why you know I'm a big fan of your channel and why a lot of people are a big fan of the channel because we're gonna get your raw opinion and not worry about a company changing your mindset or like yeah, again a yeah. third party changing your mindset about something. Yeah, and the fact that you go so in depth with your reviews and you make sure you do every part of the game and you make sure that you could you include these fun personal anecdotes that really add your own personal flair to it and your own personality, which definitely is take is a big difference maker compared to, you know, your average, you know, everyday paid to review reviewer. I appreciate that. I'm I'm glad that shines through. Like one of my biggest fears at times, uh, like with the channel, because you know everybody has professional fears, is I'm always scared that people aren't going to get it. Like that's genuinely the thing that keeps me up at night occasionally. It's just the fact that I'm like I'm trying to be the gamer dude. I'm trying like I'm I'm purposely trying to make my content as approachable as possible and like as simplified as possible and descriptive as possible. And I'm always afraid that someone's gonna stumble on my video and be like, who the hell is this clown? <laughs> <laughs> well that's what makes you so special. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And so I appreciate those kind of words. Those definitely help me out. Thank you. Yeah, because it's like that's part of the reason why we go to the whole spawn cast as well. Because yeah, we know that you guys are just regular gamer people. And you're so relatable to your audience. And, you know, it means a lot to us. It really does. Yeah. And we appreciate, man, the whole, the Spawn cast is definitely one of the, the best things that's ever happened to me. I, obviously, Spawnway just approached me four years ago. He randomly approached me. I was about 40,000 subscribers at the time. He was about 12,000. And he just approached me and said, uh, I'm thinking about trying to put together a Saturday night live show where we'll just go over the gaming topics and kind of give our opinions. Do you want to come on occasionally? I was like, sure. And now here we are four years later and we have freaking t-shirts and like crazy revolving cast of what I would consider like gaming celebrities occasionally. It is a, it's insane how this ended up. What's it like working on the spawn cast every week? What's like, what's the process that you guys go through to make such a popular live stream. That's pretty widely known in the gaming industry. I think. Um, I think the biggest thing is we kind of just, uh, so we all talk a lot behind the scenes. We we communicate pretty much all day, every day. We pitch ideas back and forth. It's very much of like, we are a super, super, super tight-knit group, which is why it is incredibly easy to get on camera together because it's just, I mean, it's, it's me and my best buddies talking about the games that we've been playing all week. Um, it's super, super fun. And since we've been talking all week, it obviously, it makes us understand like, all right, we, this is a topic that's worth our attention. This is one that won't be fun for our attention. Uh, it, it's, it's super easy. Honestly, it's the easiest thing ever. Sometimes we'll be like, like, isn't it stressful to be on camera in front of like thousands of people? And it's really not because it is with your best freaking friends. It is, is the best. I love it. Honestly, I'm so eternally thankful that I have those guys in my back. Now I got to ask this though, Dreamcast guy, I have to ask this. What is your favorite RGT85 story? Because RGT85, I think, is he's funny because he's like the kind of the cool kid who goes to school, who plays video games, and he's a nerd like everybody else. Oh, <laughs> like yeah, absolutely. Because for me, I thought it was really funny a couple weeks ago when he was on the show, you guys, but he was on Tinder. Like, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. Phone, and we're like, what is he doing on his phone? And we found <laughs> out he was actually on Tinder. <laughs> I love RGT. I'm trying to think of one I could... It, He's had a bunch of like hilarious, embarrassing stuff happen behind the scenes, but I'm not sure which one <laughs> one I should tell. Um, I'll tell one that that definitely still cracks me up to this day. Um, it's a video he deleted, and he's like still like he's like embarrassed about it, but I think it's funny embarrassed. A couple years ago, 
um, a fan of his was working at E3 before E3 had started this year. Some guy that was just randomly working on the event who was obsessed with our GT85 decided to just send him pictures of E3 secretly being like, here's what the stadium looks like. Here's all these games that are about to be revealed. So RGT85 just decided to talk about it. Just like, hey, here's the stuff that's probably going to get announced tomorrow. But he said, hey, this employee <laughs> sent it to me. After about 15 minutes, he realized, oh, this guy's going to get fired. So he deletes it, tries to erase all the evidence of these leaks, was super, super embarrassed. The guy did not get fired or anything. And he told RGT, hey, man, it's not a big deal. Like, it's whatever. It was just a mess up. But privately, RGT85 was like, I am the dumbest person on the planet. Like, why did I think that that was the correct approach? He's like, I just, I was so excited. I just jumped on camera. I went, yeah, let's talk about these leaks. I'm so excited about these games. Oh, my God, this is a train wreck. Oh, God, I'm going to, at one point, he thought he thought he was going to get like 50 people fired. He's like, oh, God, they're going to fire the entire team setting up E3 because of me. It's like, no. And we, we had a, everybody was having to be like, Sean, calm down. Like, Sean, it's okay. It's okay. No, none of this is traceable. It's fine. The video was up for 15 minutes. And Sean was like, no, man. Oh, I thought I got to have to buy that guy a hot dog to apologize. <laughs> I like how that's the solution he had for how to fix the problem. Yeah. Uh, and, and normally he's such a laid back guy. He doesn't ever feel guilty. Cause like, that's, that's the thing is RGT 85 is just such a bro. He just wants to help people out or talk or like, you know, maybe beat some hoes off Tinder or something. He's just lived such a carefree life. That's the only time I think I ever saw him like feel genuinely bad about a mess up. So that, cause he, he does care about gaming news. He does care about getting things right. And he, he cares about like spreading fun information and not just being like, well, everything sucks. Yeah. And, and that's something that, that you and the entire Spawncast crew do is you bring positivity into the gaming community and not be like oh everything sucks like you guys have so many laughs and so much fun on there uh, it's great it's a great time but yeah that, uh, a lot of it can be really hard to keep energy up when doing live shows and podcasts all the time do you guys find that you save your conversations for the podcast or do you talk about it beforehand or and, and just kind of like re-talk about certain things no, we, we don't ever need to do that. I, I think it's because we game together a lot. I, I don't know. It's like, it's maybe it's just that we've been podcasting for so many years. So it's easy to just turn it on when we need to turn it on. But it, it, genuinely, the podcast is super easy and simplistic. It, it's super easy to be high energy and stuff because they really are my best bros. And we game together a lot and we plan projects a lot. Like we're always cooking up like 15 different things. There's always such an excitement. Like I'll, I'll, I'll tell y'all a little tidbit that we're there. We're kind of kicking around as we're talking about the idea of because we play games behind the scenes together a lot. We're talking about the idea of maybe doing uh, maybe a once every two or three months let's play thing where we just upload like two hours of us playing games together because we thought that maybe the crew would like that. Like the, the viewers would like that because one of the ones that's coming up is uh Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles Remastered, and that's coming to Switch, and everybody on the crew is excited for it coming to Switch, so they were saying, maybe we just turn on Discord and jump in there and play that game and slay some elves and stuff and hang out, and and that's the kind of thing, is that we just game together so much, we just end up constantly coming up with 10 extra ideas that we can't even do, you know? Yeah, that's like a cool, unedited experience of you guys just gaming and having fun, so I think people would really enjoy that. Yeah, and it's like obviously it's going to get copyright strike to hell because of uh, the music and stuff. And we're like, e even if that makes us a, like zero pennies, it's fun. And that's always been our objective is, is the show fun? Like screw how much money it makes, screw the watch time, like screw the analytics. Like if it is fun to watch, if people are happy with it, it is absolutely worth it to us.
And I guess like you're going to play the game anyway, might as well share the experience. You know, it doesn't matter what you get out of it as long as you can you know, enjoy, make someone's day a little better with it. Yeah, that's why that, I've been doing that thing recently. Uh, I've been testing it out on stream, which is just grabbing people from chat. Like I did Warzone with people in chat, and then I did uh, that full playthrough of uh, Resident Evil 5. That's the thing. It's like if you're making people happy, if you're doing something different, like it's definitely worth yeah, and I think the fact that you guys are having fun together and you could tell that you guys have like a great relationship on camera, it, it would carry over off camera and you could tell you guys are having fun. And that's really what gaming's all about is just having fun with your buddies. Yeah, I, that's one thing that, that I think some people do miss. I see YouTubers occasionally talking about burnout and stuff. And, and I mean no disrespect to them, but when I see that, I, I kind of think those are people that are treating it too much like a job it's like you're clocking into video games it's like you should always keep that fire alive of like this is freaking exciting like we are extremely privileged to play video games as a way to pay our bills it, it is an extremely fortuitous we should never take this for granted so it's easy to keep that excitement alive i feel like because it's always just hype 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 next project cool thing let's run over here and oh man i gotta send that email and get this game and oh man the next podcast is coming up it's it's easy to be like really into it all the time yeah and that that attitude makes it so that your videos are actually better because you're so into it and you're so excited about it yeah but, i never yeah. once uh, there there's actually been times where i've been having this is a true story sometimes i'll be having an awful day like something happened or like, I don't know, like I, I just feel sick or something. And I'll turn on the camera to film a news video and I'm in a better mood after I film the video. Cause it's like, man, I got to yell about fun games. <laughs> <laughs> I love your rant videos, especially. <laughs> that you make. Those are so fun. Oh my God. I'm so glad those are so fun. Yeah, they're, they're, they're honestly my favorite videos to watch of yours. My two favorite are when you did the Soldier Boy review of talking about <laughs> yeah, Soldier yeah, Boy yeah. Man's console, and when you talked about how YouTubers are bad at games, but like Angry Joe. Oh, yeah. That was great. Oh, yeah, yeah. Funny. I thought you made some really interesting points in that video, too, about, like, you know, some, some reviewers, they don't really focus on, you know, getting better at the games. They focus on their other skills. So I, I, thought, I thought you made some really good points in that. Yeah, and that's one of the things I feel like people kind of don't realize is like if your job is to be topical, you have to play so much. You have to constantly just switch gears and switch gears and switch gears. Like that that's something I remember people talking about a couple of years ago. What was it last February when we got like the we got Capcom released Devil May Cry 5 and the Resident Evil 2 remake and like another game and I think an expansion for something came out and people were like like all these YouTubers are terrible at all the games. And it's like, well, I mean, they're having to play all of them. Like they, they don't have a hundred hours to practice the quick turn of Resident Evil 2. Like I will, because I'm obsessed with the game, but it's like most of these people are going to be a little bit of trash cans just by accident. I'll tell you something random. Uh, did you know that the, the rants, uh, I experimented with the rants like seven years ago, I made the first rant video. I used to do a side series. I, I was doing the reviews at the time, but I experimented with a very short-lived series called At The Desk. And you could probably still look these up. They're awful. But I would basically film a rant. And, and I would do the same thing as I do now. But there's seven years ago. And I would film. I had this big Bioshock poster. And I would sit at my desk and very dramatically turn towards the camera and be like, Welcome to At The Desk, where we dig into one big gaming topic every week. And that was like my first experiment with the idea of just talking to the camera you know just like here's the news bam there's the news and uh at the time i was like i'm not good enough at this now but i'm glad i kind of revisited it years later now i, I have a question here and it's a little bit uh, off topic 
But so I personally, I only found you very recently because uh, of Justin over here in the podcast. So I, I have not seen many of your videos, but I can say that I like them. I like the style you come up, uh, you come at the games with. I like your opinions are usually, I think, very good. Or even if I don't necessarily agree with them, I think they're like you, you come at them in a way that's very respectable. But there's one thing that I just don't know yet. And it's Dreamcast guy. What made your name become Dreamcast guy? And what is it about the Dreamcast that really caught your attention? Uh, it It's sort of like, a, it, it's not super magical. It doesn't, it's not like super cool. It's uh, in the early 2000s, uh, my mom left and she never really came back and uh it was like part of a bad divorce and all these legal cases it was was an unfortunate thing and before she left uh she came to me and said like little max like uh, i'll get you any gift uh you kind of got a birthday around here like i'll buy you any gift you want because i'm gonna go away for a bit and and as a kid you don't take that seriously like okay my parents are always going to be around so um, I didn't think of anything good or sentimental or anything. I just went, oh, I want the Dreamcast because, you know, the Dreamcast had been out for a bit then and I still saw it. So she took me to the store and bought me a Dreamcast, uh, Sonic Adventure and Crazy Taxi. Two great games. I know. Super, super good games. I loved them a bunch. But uh, she left and I kind of got tired of the Dreamcast after a bit and like put it in the closet and went back to playing like PlayStation and uh, all of that. And then uh, in high school... I ran into this guy at a party once uh, who said like, Hey, I've got every Dreamcast game ever. And he showed me burned Dreamcast games and I had never oh, seen. Burned... I remember that. Yeah. yeah. And I'd never seen that. And he showed me how boot discs worked and he explained like uh, the online scene. And I'd never, I'd never seen or heard any of this stuff. So uh, I had a Game Boy Advance SP shortly after they had come out. So he said, if you give me your Game Boy, I'll give you 150 burned dreamcast games and to me those are basically real dreamcast games so it was an incredibly mind-blowingly like very advantageous to me so i accepted the trade took him um after that is kind of when i had to go through all the stuff of uh uh i was living on the streets i was homeless for a while i kind of managed to put my life back together but there was this like five-year period of grueling poverty where I'd have couches to sleep on and I'd have little tiny like odd jobs I do to like eat. But in the afternoons, I would play through these 150 Dreamcast games. I would try and beat all the discs and find all the stuff. And uh, I started having access to the internet. So I started looking up like walkthroughs and guides for some of the harder stuff like the hidden items in Skies of Arcadia. But as I started working more and doing retail and having actual income, uh, I started trying to track down the real discs. I wanted to have these 150 games in particular. So I started just going out and finding like uh, closing down Hollywood videos and stuff. And at this point, the retro bubble, it basically popped. I, I was buying these Dreamcast games for just pennies most of the time, just absolutely nothing. Even the rarest games of this period were just so cheap. So I would go store to store to store, begging them to dig around for Dreamcast games. And I got a reputation in Dallas, Texas as being that annoying guy who always begs for you to find Dreamcast stuff. So one day I walked into this uh, 
retro gaming shop called Console Game Exchange. And I said, hey, do you have any like uh, Dreamcast stuff? And he said, oh, I've heard about you, Mr. Dreamcast guy. Well, let me show you what I got. And, and for some reason that really hit me and more people started calling me Dreamcast guy. So when I made my YouTube channel, it just seemed like the obvious name. I mean, that's my only nickname. So I, I call myself Dreamcast guy. All right. That's a very interesting story. I like that. I can't think of much of a worse time in someone's life when you don't have even a home to go through. And I'm, I'm so sorry you had to deal with that. Your, your story is really, really inspiring to all of us. And the fact that you're able to now live and, you know, do your, your literally your dream and make these great videos that people love and share your personality, your amazing personality and, you know, your, your honesty on the Internet is really powerful. And I just want to thank you for that so much. It's my pleasure. It's pure luck. I, I feel like that's the thing I always try and say is, is I didn't get out of that scenario by hard work or like some special skills. Like genuinely, the only way I got out of that is people helping me. Like random strangers. At one point, a random person let me just sleep in her house. I was a, a filthy kid living on the street with no freaking teeth. She saw me and just a random lady let me live in her like shed for a bit and then sleep in a, on a couch like literally the only reason I'm alive is strangers. So it's, it's anytime people are like, just work harder. Like, absolutely. That's not it. Like the only reason I am here, the only reason a lot of people are here is kindness to strangers. So whenever I talk about charity or giving money to food banks, that's not me just blowing out my ass. Like literally they save freaking lives. Like I would not be here without strangers for absolutely no payback, just pulling me out of the mud. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. It's amazing. The kindness of other people sometimes like yeah a lot of people like to be hard on humanity but sometimes everyday people can really make a huge difference in someone they don't even know his life and it's really beautiful it's because you just don't hear about them there's too much bad being talked about and all the little good things go on untalked about yeah really for sure like that so while we're on the topic of the dreamcast um since you know the dreamcast did a did a good job you know kind of saving your sanity during such a hard time what do you think could have saved the dreamcast since uh it historically was uh, a little bit of a flop in terms oh, yeah. of the dreamcast saved you so how can <laughs> yeah exactly i didn't want to give the dreamcast all the credit it sounds like strangers really did it but i'm know. just i'm just joking yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i've i've had this this mental debate with myself a lot i, I and this might be like kind of overestimating the power of the Dreamcast, but I, I personally believe it would have succeeded if they had just put in a DVD drive. And, and the reason I say that is because I think the games would have been bigger. The load times might not have been so egregious. Uh, a lot of games had to be smaller because the Dreamcast ran a special kind of disc called a GD-ROM. It wasn't even a CD-ROM. It was these really weird, funky discs. There was a lot of like like hardships that existed because they wanted these unique discs. I think if they made it have standard DVD media, it also would have helped to get more just casual gamer purchases. It's like often regarded in the industry that part of the reason the PS2 took off was because all you needed for the PS2 was like to you play your DVDs, your PS2 could play your uh, PS1 games, your PS2 games. It was such an accessible system. I think that more people would have given the Dreamcast a chance if it was more than just the Dreamcast game player. They made uh, that, that mini, you know, uh, SNES they had a while back. I forget how long ago that was now. They sold out and it came with a couple of games on it. Do you think something like a like a Dreamcast version of that could be something that they plan on releasing or they could look to plan to release? 
Uh, I don't think I should talk on that topic. Oh, okay. <laughs> wow. I, I have heard stuff. I do think that that will exist at some point. And the other thing to consider is that Sega still owns a lot of their IP. Whereas like if, if when Sony did it for the PlayStation Classic, the PlayStation Classic had to be prohibitively expensive because they don't own those games. They have to pay the licensing fee for right. Final Fantasy VII again and stuff. Whereas if we got a Dreamcast Mini, hypothetically in the future, it would be able to have Jet Grind Radio and Shinmu and all this stuff is still fully 100% music, tracks, physics, everything is still fully in total owned by Sega. So they could drop it in there for pure profit. People have a, a definitely a great revisionist history for the Dreamcast because it's a great system with some really, really great games. Yeah, but oh man, was it, it did not take off. People like to act like it was uh, big and successful. Man, you, you couldn't even find one in stores. It was, uh, it was practically kept in the back. It was, uh, did not catch on until long after its failure. You know, some of the greatest artists didn't catch on till after their death. So maybe the Dreamcast is really one of our greatest artists of our time. <laughs> I, I, do, I do consider it the best console of all time. And I feel like the biggest testament to that is that we're still getting new games. Game developers to this day are making new games for the Dreamcast that are great. I still buy them. I still get sent them a lot. And they're, they're fantastic. Wait, so really? They're making if, Dreamcast games still? Yeah, yeah, because wow. uh, it's Windows NT, it's actually super easy to program for. So a lot of like uh, early programmers as an experiment will form a game idea on the Dreamcast and sell it. So there's all sorts of, there's a very famous shooter called Ducks, D-U-X. Uh, my personal favorite, there's a giant like 80 hour RPG that's got this really interesting uh, energy trading mechanic called Pure Solar and the Great Architects. Also has a fantastic soundtrack, very uh, homage of uh, Grandia. There's Rush Rush Rally Racing, there's puzzle games, there's tons and tons and tons of games that came out five, six, and even ten years after the Dreamcast failed. Uh, they're still being made to this day. Somebody just sent me one uh, this year. I got another one called Rizzo's Island. This guy's, uh, uh, his uncle was uh, making surfer rock music and his uncle passed away. So in honor of his uncle, he started using his uncle's unreleased music to make a surfer platforming adventure game and he sends it to me and his uncle's music is great it's a very very appropriate awesome soundtrack for a game that's very unique and because the dreamcast is so easy to code for he's making it completely by himself that's so cool wow. i had no idea about that yeah, i didn't know that that's very that's wild <laughs> it's wild yeah. to think they're still making things for dreamcast that's that insane. yeah well and and i don't know if y'all know this but hackers keep all the servers up so to this day you can play fantasy star online still exists there's a thing called stack you uh these germans keep the servers up you use a game shark and you manually reroute your router to connect to their servers instead of sega so uh sega online racing if you still want to do the chow events and sonic adventure all of that still oh, fully wow. exists to this day I've, I've heard of i've heard of that game fantasy star online I never would have thought there's still people who had servers up for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the love of the Dreamcast is truly eternal. Yeah, I, I had no idea. That's really beautiful, though. And now I, I know what I'm going to look into right after this because I, <laughs> um, I heard I heard before you mentioned um, Shenmue. So, what made you such a big Shenmue fan? Part of it was just the the stuff I went through. It became this. Uh, well, when I was uh, kind of just roaming around in life and not having a place to go, I had uh, a copy of Shinmu uh, burned in my DVD case. 
And it was always kind of that thing I think about like uh, in hard times of like, oh, I can't wait till I can have a TV to just hook up and sit down and play. So when I was finally at a point where my life was stable and I, I was able to just have enough free hours in a freaking day where I could play a game, I beat Shinmu and it had such a deep impact on me. I love the story. Uh, it was the first like open world game I ever played. The idea of like, like you could choose to not beat that game. It's possible to just go to the arcade and collect your allowance and hang out and do your forklift job. It was to me, it was it was very very inspirational. I'd never seen a game like that. And then uh, my friend who had eBay, I did not have access to eBay. I didn't know how the internet worked or anything back then. But he told me that he could get me a super cheap copy of a uh, Shinmu Two in perfect condition from Europe. And he says, it's in English. You can totally play it. I already gave you the boot disc. So I said, sure. So I gave him $30 and he sent me a copy of uh, Shinmu 2 and I beat Shinmu 2 and that just blew my mind all over again. So it's just such a deeply, it's probably just a personal thing. It's my own nostalgia, but it was a deeply personal journey beating that game. So the emotional connection of not only just how good of an experience it was playing that game, but also that you finally were able to play it after such a long time of wanting to, like really. Yeah, it's that. I'm like, just imagine, like imagine a game you've been hyped for for years and years and years, and you finally play it, and it's it's a better than you ever could have imagined. That's what it was for me is that I'd heard of Shinmu and I'd read some interviews and I saw some Dreamcast magazine screenshots, but when I finally played it, I was like, oh my god, this is so much better than I could have thought. So I was. I was just so happy with it. Still to this day, I still have beaten a Shinmu 1. I've beaten several times. I've gotten the Platinum Trophy on the PlayStation 4 version. I own all the collector's editions of the Shinmu uh, HD collection. I own the Ultimate Edition of the Shinmu 3 collector's edition. It's like a series that's very important to me. I think it's a very rare experience that a game not only is as exciting as you thought it was going to be, but more. So I think that's really beautiful that you had that experience, especially after such a long time of hardship. It's definitely going, it's not a game that's super, the pacing is strange. Uh, One of the things it does is it tries to simulate real time. So while you're playing it, uh, there will be times like uh, specifically a quest will be like, oh, you need to go and get your haircut at 9 p.m. And while you're there, you need to question the barber. But time actually moves in a realistic manner. So since your character gets up at 9 a.m., you have to just stand around in town chilling for nine hours because or 10, 12 hours, because that's your only mission objective right now. So you end up having to go to the arcade or having to just train your Kung Fu in a park. And I think a lot of people get turned off by the fact that the game, like time gates you a lot. And, you know, we, I think it's important to realize that like these games, you know, from long ago were such like a revolutionary thing at the time. And now we have something like, I'm sure you've seen it, the Unreal 5, Unreal Engine 5 gameplay. Ooh, yeah, yeah. And we jump to that and we look at that. And what are your thoughts on that now coming from Shenmue to to what what we've seen in that video? It's fascinating. I'm curious. So I, I talked to some game developers. I'm definitely privileged to like have some game developer buddies who understand code and tech infinitely better than I do. And uh, they're excited for that tech demo a lot because they basically said that it sounds like it's going to speed up development idea time. Uh, One of the problems you have a lot of times in game development is like you come up with a concept for combat or graphics or art or something, and it takes you so many months to even start crafting the prototype to pitch. You know, like there's, there's like 18 development phases before the game can even really start being made. Uh, which is why you hear about pre-alpha and pre-pre-alpha so much. And I've heard that this new engine, not only does it look great, not only does it apparently run great, but apparently some of the stuff they were saying directly about how it works, you will just be able to a lot more 
just like take a picture of a park bench and have a park bench kind of thing. So I know a lot of game developers are like, wow, we're going to be able to make games bigger, more beautiful, and hopefully even faster. Maybe like a ninth gen will actually be the development time where it's not like five years for every AAA game. That would be incredible if we see the development time cut in half. Well, like, uh, like Dreamcast guy was saying before, though, when you start getting better at doing things, you start wanting to do more or you know making things exactly. better so they're probably going to make these games they're probably not going to make more of them but they're going to make these games bigger and better than we've ever seen that's exciting to me and, and maybe with half the development team that's something else i've heard is like if you don't need 18 background programmers then you could start to have two teams you could have people making separate games at once so even if one game still takes five years to make but it's bigger at least now you're going to get two games every five years so i don't know i'm super excited to see what this actually turns into weirdly for me, the most exciting part about that whole uh unreal engine gameplay thing was when they talked about how like your character reaches for a realistic place to grab in the yeah i actually really like that too mm-hmm. Little things like that are to me what's going to make the difference from like this new gen stuff like are specifically like breath of the wild you climb wall you're just kind of like moving your arms and legs and you can that's fine like it gets the job done but when you put in that little effort to make it more immersive i really really like that and i appreciate that yeah and it shows that game developers I think sometimes there's that stereotype of like the gamers are over here and the developers are over there in California. They don't listen to us. I feel like this technology is letting us see that like game developers are gamers too. They know that we care about that and they care about it too. They know that like detail is important detail, like having realistic animations can make a game 10 times better. Even if your brain doesn't consciously process it, it just, it adds to the whole experience. It makes it more like immersive experience overall, which is something that I think is really special. And it's something that, like, as video games develop as an art form, it's something, you know, that we see this progression in how the visuals are, too. And I think that really adds to the art form, too. Yeah, I'm really excited because this this feels like a really big, like, actually technological leap. The thing about the eighth generation to me, um, and, and I'm sure you, you're going to agree with the same Dreamcast guy because I heard you say this before. But basically, for me, the eighth generation was just the seventh gen with a fresh coat of paint. Like it just the graphics were a little better here. It didn't feel like a big leap, like going from the N64 to the GameCube or the PS2, the PS3, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. So, something I've heard game developers kicking around now for like 15 years is the idea of uh, adaptive enemy AI. Like, you'll be able to join a multiplayer bot match and fight against a bunch of enemies, and the enemies will learn how you killed them. They'll be like, okay, he camps around this door a lot. Or, oh, man, he he uses that shotgun in a way that I was not programmed to use that shotgun. So they'll learn from you. So you have to play the game in a different way or else the enemy will kill you with your own tactics. And it makes you better and better and better and better at it. So when you eventually go into an online match, you're like this master chess player who's never played chess. And I'm going to be so curious to see that kind of stuff as well. Of Like, now that we're getting to this level of computing and solid state drive where we can have multiple layers of AI coding stacked on top of each other. It's, it's so interesting to see what the sky's limit will be. That's so cool. They, they worked on it with early halo games and they realized, okay, we can make this, but I've heard the main thing was just that technology couldn't handle it. Like you, you would have to have one enemy that was smart and a bunch of dumb enemies, or you'd have to have like a super empty level. It'd have to be like a dusk two in counter strike. And like, 
now we're finally at a place where, okay, you can make Spider-Man level of graphics and a nice big city and have it where the enemies aren't just walking into walls. Honestly, as someone, I didn't, I didn't know about that adaptive AI thing, but I'm a huge fan of strategy games and I'm interested in seeing if they take advantage of that. Cause I know in a lot of strategy games I've played, you can take advantage of the same strategies over and over, but if the AI adapts to your strategies, that would make it really engaging. And I, it'd be super cool. And me too. I, I like uh, strategy games, but you're right. Like, Typically, when you're go- going against AI, brute force wins. If you slam yep. them with a million soldiers 20 minutes of the game, they can't stop you. But if the enemy starts realizing, oh, he goes brute force, maybe they'll attack you early, or maybe they'll be able to realize, oh, if we just destroy his mind at the start, he can't buy expensive units. It'd be interesting if the AI starts to, to play more like players. Yeah, yeah, adapts to strategic patterns. That would be really interesting. I hope they do that. The, there, there is the downside. Have y'all seen the uh, the Activision uh, copyright? Where Activision has copyrighted a special piece of technology that will create fake players. You'll yes. like join an online match, yeah, and it'll it'll let you win a little bit more than you would have. But it generates player names like uh, Bong Smoke Twenty Twenty or whatever. Yep. It'll make you think you're fighting real players. That way, you're encouraged to keep <laughs> playing if you've lost like ten matches. I was actually about to bring this up too because with this powerful AI. They can start making what they people think are actual players, and they make yep. them feel good that they're winning. <laughs> they're actually not real players. It's actually just bots. And then you eventually get thrown in, and you get beat by people, and they try and maybe sell you things, make it seem like you can, you know, be better at the game. And it's a scary thing to think about because you know, on one side it's great, but on the other side, who knows? Who knows what they're gonna do? It's like Matrix level stuff. Do you? I know. Yeah. <laughs> know that you're fighting the ai and <laughs> or do you want to like or to not know that you're fighting ai and feel good about it or to know and then feel like they're trying to trick you all the time uh, i don't want to know feel about i don't want yeah. <laughs> i'm a big fan of uh fun house they're like a comedy gaming channel yes. and J- one of their guys james james willems said that J- james willems was like i'd pay a monthly fee to fight the bots if they didn't tell me that that's what I was like, like I, just thought I was the world's best player. I'd log into that game every day. <laughs> what are you looking forward to most about the ninth gen consoles? I'm so curious to see. I mean, the stuff I'm hearing people explain about solid state sounds so advanced. We've never had a generation of console or PT technology that was based around developing purposefully around solid state drives um i've heard a lot of people say that like you'll be able to hear like the insides of buildings uh more and more enemies on screen greater graphical detail just stuff like that like along with faster load times uh one of the analogies i've heard is driving down the street in grand theft auto and you'll be able to just stop your car and jump through a window and punch somebody while he's porking his wife and then steal his lamp because all of that is already rendered it's already there it's not like it needs to process this it doesn't need to have those fake gateways where you need to stop and listen to a phone call so it can secretly load the next area like i don't know it's going to be curious to see technology and how these games are going to look i'm curious how how games are going to play i can't even imagine to be quite honest i i can't even fully imagine what this is going to be like this is this is uncharted territory so i know for me i have been a pc gamer for a long time now the only console i actually get are nintendo consoles but with the new ps5 and xbox I am very impressed with what they've got going on and what they're doing now with the new Xbox is I think they're really going in a a very interesting direction. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the two systems and which one you think is going to be better. 
Um, if if I had to really guess and think long term, I think the end of ninth generation. I do think that Xbox is going to be further ahead. I, I do think that Xbox has the advantage that they've now purchased so many studios. They have a very big cabal of developers that are only making Series X projects. I think that Microsoft is going to be very, very hard to ignore at the end of ninth generation. But out of the gate, PlayStation 5 is going to kill it. I, I mean, the last couple of years have been so undeniably appealing with God of War and Spider-Man and Bloodborne and freaking Persona 5 still being a console exclusive. I, I think people realize that if you want hardcore, beautiful single-player games, you got to go to the PlayStation. That, that's kind of the home of it. So I think when the PlayStation 5 comes out, I think a lot of people are still going to think, okay, well, if I want you know, Nathan Drake to come back and you know go on another adventure and raid some tombs, this is the place to do it. I, I think the PlayStation 5 is going to sell really strong at the start, and I think that Xbox may somehow catch up at the end. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, yeah, because the Xbox, the most popular games on Xbox are the same games you can play on PlayStation. But with the addition of PlayStation, you can play these great games that Xbox has cannot have on their console. And I know I've always been an Xbox kid growing up, but the past few years, honestly, I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to PlayStation things. I, I mean, definitely the advantage that I think uh, is the gamble that will hopefully pay off is Games Pass. The fact that like no Xbox gamer ever has to pay $60 for a game ever, unless they optionally choose to do so the fact that every game is on games pass for like ten dollars a month i think that's really going to pay off in time i think a lot of people uh like especially imagine all the soccer moms and stuff like obviously soccer moms are a lot more educated about gaming than they were 10 years ago so they're going to understand what the xbox series x is probably but if they go to the store and they're like i want to buy something for little timmy little timmy doesn't have a big allowance though which would you suggest most store clerks are going to be like well this one you pay ten dollars a month and you get 800 video games and this is the playstation 5 it's got spyro like most <laughs> soccer moms are probably going to choose the xbox in that case that's a good point actually and i think that's a really good marketing strategy especially going into like the the beginning time of the of the console war when they're both released and i think xbox also kind of has the advantage that they've been a lot more transparent about their model in terms of like they've shown us a lot more um, I don't know if the PS5, they just don't have it ready yet to show us, or I, as a person who's not like an insider, have seen a lot more for the Xbox. As much as I don't like exclusives on consoles, I wish they weren't a thing. Um, I definitely like the PlayStation exclusives they have, like Ratchet and Clank. You know, these these games that I've grown up with are still on PlayStation and not on Xbox. So if it came down to one or the other for me, it would definitely be PlayStation, because Xbox just doesn't have the exclusives. I think that's where a lot of people are going to lean on, too. Also helps that you can get all the Xbox exclusives on PC now. True. Kind of... Yeah, and, and especially the thing that as somebody who's very new to PC gaming, the fact that it's so easy to just plug in a controller, your computer immediately recognizes it. It immediately changes all the prompts on screen. It's kind of got to that point where, like, if I want to play Halo, I'm not playing that on my Xbox. I'm playing that on my PC. I'm still playing it with an Xbox controller, but it looks better here. It runs better here. It loads faster. It's like there's no more reason to plug into my Xbox One. Right. Yep. That's why I play Halo now. Now that's on Master Chief Collections on the PC. That's where I'm playing Mm -hmm. it. (laughs) Playing on the PC. PlayStation controller a lot for any game because I loved the 360. Did not like the Xbox One controller and 
and I hated the PS3 controller, but loved PS4 controllers. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fickle person when it comes to these consoles. It doesn't take a lot to sway me to each side. <laughs> I think that's good to be, though, honestly. I think if you're if you're willing to vacate a console as soon as a better console is there, you're more open-minded to the experiences. I think some people get so rooted in a console war, they ruin their own console experience. You get so so stuck on one allegiance that you don't think like impartially, like what's actually the best purchase I can make. You know, you're just like, oh, I'm diehard Xbox. I'm getting the Series X. But you really should look at both sides and see like, you know, which console is actually more worth my money. Speaking on like some more third party consoles, some some of the dark horses of the of the ninth generation. You know, uh, what's your thoughts on the Intellivision Amico? Because we interviewed Tommy Tellerico on this show and we are fans of the Amico, but we're just curious what you think. Um, I'm friends with Tommy. He's a nice dude. Talk to him privately occasionally. Super, super humble, intelligent guy. I think that thing is going to bomb. I think it is going to absolutely plummet. Uh, and the reason why is I, I think to some degree you have to court hardcore gamers. Like uh, one of the things that I think helped the uh, Nintendo Wii sold. Nintendo Wii sold a lot because grandmas were having it in retirement homes. Everybody was doing Wii bowling. But what got people to stick around to the Wii was the fact that it had games like Xenoblade and more hardcore Marios like Galaxy. I think the thing that gets people to play stuff longer is deeper, more, you know, more exploration-based experiences. The fact that everything on here is going to be cheap, I, I think it's cool that uh, everything's going to be, what, what do you say, 2 to $5 for two, every single yeah, game? Yeah, $2.99 to $9.99, he said. Yeah, so super, super bottom dollar. That's interesting. But graphically, from the stuff he showed, I mean, my cell phone game has better, my cell phone has better graphics, and my cell phone is a crappy little prepaid, you know? It's like, I, I can't even imagine stepping away from my computer and my PlayStation 4 and my Nintendo Switch that I love so much and hooking up that thing and playing it for more than 30 minutes. Like, I don't care if I had 80 games on it. I just can't imagine playing it longer than 30 minutes. It just seems too archaic. He does have a really strong team behind him. Very studied game developers, for sure. He has a lot of people in his circle that know what the hell, way more than what I know about. They definitely are doing something something right. I think one major issue is, is I know it was talked about, but the price. I, the, when you're coming out with some people are buying both Xbox and PS5. Some people are still buying Switches. And in a time where people are spending so much money on games and having so many games to play, uh, it's going to be hard for him to compete in that with uh, with such a high price at 250 I know he did say he wants to bring the price down, though, and he's trying to make it as worthwhile of a purchase as possible. But you are right that if you are thinking about buying a ninth-generation console, it is kind of a big ask to say, I'm going to get the PS5 and I'm also going to get the Amico. You want, it, it's like, it is a lot of money if you want to get more than one thing. Yeah, well, and also, I guess the biggest thing to me is definitely just not not just the price, but I don't know, just the idea of accessibility. I feel like we're in a time now where where people want to buy a pack of games. They want to spend a tax return. Like people are willing to spend money, but I, I don't know. I just feel like if you want a great handheld, the best handheld in the world exists now, which is the Nintendo Switch. If you want a hardcore experience or like a big 500-hour RPG or something, you have PCs and MMOs and even console MMOs. I don't know. It just it seems too far outside the comfort zone. I just uh, the marketability seems like the real hurdle that I'm not sure they can clear. Mm-hmm. I, I'm yeah. in agreement with you here. 
I see what you're saying. Because I mean, what are you? What What are they really? You know, competing with here? Like, which are they trying to compete with the Switch and say that this is a family console, or are they, you know, trying to, like, are they trying to compete with you know Xbox, PS5? I don't think so. But I, I don't. I just don't see where the the desire for this is out of the you know gaming community. Thing is, I really think the in-person demos showing off the console would help them out a lot. But given the current situation, where I mean, although GameStop is essential according to themselves, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, <laughs> it, is, it is difficult to um, to have people try a console in a time where we don't really want to be sharing things in person with people we don't really know. For sure. I, I will say, disclosure, I'm definitely buying it. Uh, I, I want to make videos on it. I plan on purchasing one myself just to be unbiased and everything. And uh, I'm yeah. probably picking up that GameStop one because I hate GameStop, uh, but Jesus Christ, do I love purple. Yeah, I love purple, purple looks purple. awesome, doesn't it? <laughs> it looks great. Yeah, I know. I was I was looking at that one too. And I'm just, I, I, as much as I don't want to give money to GameStop, I mean, purple is a cool color. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he definitely has challenges making the console. And, and again, I... I Tommy's a great guy and he's has so much experience in the industry. So I hope he does well. And, and again, we, we had a whole, you know, two hour, two and a half hour discussion with him about it. He's get flappy bird, put flappy bird on. Flappy bird. That's true. The ultimate sequel flappy bird to the return of flapping it. <laughs> Which, with couch co-op. They could have motion controllers. You could flap your arms, and it would. Oh my god! (laughs) With the touchscreen. We'll take that. They got a hire. I know you got a skilled team here, but like, (laughs) you have room for one more. (laughs) But did you try flapping your arms? Yeah, as a team of amateurs on a podcast who have never written a line of code, let me tell you what game. I do hope Earthworm Jim turns out great, though, because that, to me, if that game is good, man, that might be a system seller, because I do love me some Earthworm Jim. I, I do, too. I don't know. I, I, my, I, it's one thing I have definitely hear talks about is brand awareness. Like, trying to sell old games gets harder and harder. So I'm curious, like, how many people in 2020, who know, knows who Earthworm Jim is? Who, who's ever even seen an Earthworm Jim comic book? I didn't, even know I didn't even know that. Wait, there was a comic book off Earthworm Jim? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a comic and they made the game and the cartoon. Oh, I didn't know uh, there was a comic. Uh, <laughs> wow. No idea. Did you, Jeremy? There you go. There you go. Brand awareness. Yeah. <laughs> point made. A lot of people who are really fond of Earthworm Jim is kind of like a cult following for it. But uh, I don't know. If, I don't know. Those are more hardcore gamers, though. And that's like the target that he's specifically not targeting. So it's very, very confused on this whole console right now. Well, from what I remember him telling us, it was the focus is going to be on like, you know, capturing casual gamers, but also the difficulty adjusts for each game based on who, like based on who's playing and how well they're performing. So I think the, while the target audience is a casual audience, they do have something in mind for hardcore gamers, but obviously we'll have to see exactly how that plays out my mind will remain open for it for sure if it's good if it's good i'll get to make a big clickbait video called was i wrong about (laughs) (laughs) and honestly that's the biggest win you can get well be careful (laughs) be careful (laughs) guy you don't want to be a shill (laughs) (laughs) we're shills after all (laughs) enjoying something and defending something you think is interesting makes you a shill that's right (laughs) exactly exactly Mm -hmm. so 
Well, all right, guys. I think this was a really great discussion. Um, does anyone else have any final thoughts to add? And, and, and again, Dreamcast guy, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a lot of fun, and, and we learned a lot about you, and and we learned a lot about like a lot about the Dreamcast and other things we didn't know about before. I just want to say before we wrap up, you guys are amazingly talented podcasters. I'm not sure how long y'all have been doing this, but all of y'all are really clear and well-spoken. I just want to say massive respect to y'all. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you. Genuinely, thank you for having me on. Oh, well, thanks so much. We, we actually just thank started you. this only a couple thank months ago. Thank you so much. <laughs> and, and actually, Sean and, and Tom, this is their first episode on the show. <laughs> Even though yeah, they, this, they, is my, <laughs> this is my first podcast <laughs> ever. I've never done one. Yeah, we did YouTube videos back in the day and and – you know, we I kind of want to take this more seriously now that I have a bunch of video and audio production experience because I went to school for that and I do that for a career. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's been a lot of fun so far. And having you on and giving a compliment like that means so much. I, I really appreciate that. Y'all are already beating 99% of the podcast. Now it's just a matter of putting out content. Like once you have a schedule, once you're uploading a bunch, once you have like a library, people who stumble on your work subscribe more. So you guys are already beating the edge. So. It was it was really a pleasure oh, talking to you. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you so much for the compliment. Yeah, thanks. So much. It means a lot from someone who has seen success in the podcast industry, for sure. Yeah, from you coming from the Spawncast that does a, literally a podcast every week to say that and be genuine about it is is awesome. So thank you so much. That that means a lot. We all reach uh, episode 100. Bring me back. I'll be on the, the celebratory council. All right. <laughs> well, <Do it>. Definitely. <laughs> no, Dreamcast guy, I will 100% have you on 100 episode special yeah <laughs> awesome. that sounds like a plan justin what episode are we on now uh well, this is episode this is gonna be episode nine <laughs> all right <laughs> all right we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep you posted almost a tenth of the way there yeah. <laughs> Here's the be the biggest party ever <laughs> yeah. we'll bring tommy tell rico on we'll bring you on <laughs> <laughs> man remember when we thought the amico wouldn't take over the world it's crazy <laughs> yeah. 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 crazy was the highest song yeah. we'll, br- we'll bring on rgt <laughs> so we can so we can make sure he he helps us out on tinder <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, tinder, oh, man. tinder tips yeah that's the, that's the video i would love <laughs> tinder tips <laughs> rgt we got to make that happen <laughs> you guys own segment episode 100 tinder tips <laughs> <and RGT. laughs> if you swipe right on everybody even the uggos will eventually talk to you Oh, well, oh. All right, guys. So this uh, was great. And Dreamcast guy, do you mind closing the show out with your famous outro that you do on all your videos that we love so much? Do you oh, mind? yeah, yeah. I say my catchphrases so much, sometimes I forget which ones people want me to say. Yes, uh, well, thank you so much for watching. If you enjoyed this video, be sure to smash that like button and subscribe. Smaller channels like this especially absolutely need your help. Share if you enjoyed it. Spreading the word is always good for the creators. It's good for you. It's good for everybody. It makes the internet a better place. But please do me the biggest favor of all and keep dreaming.